This morning, we, we turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. It's the grand passage in scripture that speaks of the promise of God in terms of the promise made to Abraham, which was that God would be a God to his seed and promised a seed. And the apostle sets forth the reality that that seed was Christ and then addresses issue also of the function and the purpose of the law with regard to that because we are saved by faith and points out that the law could not give life. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, Indeed, shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. 
For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We read that far in God's word. We consider now the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31. Our focus this morning will be on question and answers 83 and 84, and the Lord willing, next week we will consider 83 and 85. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How was the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them both in this and the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonitions, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and of his church. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we 
of course, are aware that in the Holy Scriptures, our Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples through Peter that to them would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And even little children here understand the concept of keys. Keys are what you use to unlock a locked door so that you may enter, or they are used to lock a door that's open so that those who may not enter will not enter. We all know the idea of keys. Those keys are keys that open and shut the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That teaches us that the kingdom of heaven is not open to everyone, nor is it shut to everyone. It is open to some and shut to others. Not only that, but even with regard to those to whom the kingdom is open, they may not simply enter in on their own. They will not enter in. They do not enter in. And consequently, the idea is that without the keys and the function of the keys, those who should not enter and may not enter would otherwise enter. That's built into the concept. Now, even more amazing is our Lord Jesus Christ gives these keys to men. He does not simply reserve them for himself, but he gives them into the hands of men, knowing full well they are not perfect men, but sinful men, men about which the Bible speaks frequently, that they are earthen vessels. They are subject to many infirmities and weaknesses like unto us, but they're given to men, certain men, which the Bible later tells us are the apostles and then later elders. Elders are given those keys, not the minister. In fact, you and I do not even hold them. They're given to the elders whom we appoint. And that even indicates that the work of the elders, therefore, is always in regard to the keys. If you wanted to know what essentially is their work, you could perhaps give all kinds of work and list all kinds of work, and you would be accurate. You would find the Scriptures delegating that work. But essentially, it's one work. It's to open and shut the kingdom. Now, we know that it's especially the duty of one office that the elders supervise by which this is done. We know that because the Scriptures tell us that one of the keys is preaching. Preaching. And that, we know, belongs to the special office of preaching, teaching. That there is an elder that the Scriptures designate to be one who especially teaches. He also engages in discipline, but that never by himself. He may not exercise that by himself. That he exercises in the office of elder with other elders. Now that reminds us of another truth we have considered already, but it's worth reminding ourselves that exactly because these are office bearers of the church, appointed by the church, and they pertain to the sacraments in the church and preaching in the church and membership in the church, 
that the kingdom of God is essentially the church. The membership of the kingdom and the membership of the church are essentially the same. That's the kingdom. If you ask, how does God gather into the kingdom? The answer is, God gathers into the church. How does God exclude someone from the kingdom? The answer is, He excludes them from the church. They're essentially the same thing. And notice that when Christ designates these keys and calls them keys with a certain function, He's implying too that this is not the work of everyone. Oh, there's a role to play. There's a part to play. It all involves us as members of the church, but it's essentially official work designated to official offices. We're going to consider all those things this morning with regard to the kingdom key of gospel preaching. We're going to focus on that one, the kingdom key of gospel preaching, and we're going to notice its office, its content, and its power. First of all, we consider its office, that this is official work. We consider that this morning because... This is one of the major problems in the church today. When one looks at the Christian church and those institutions that call themselves church, there is a recognition in many, if not most, that not everyone may preach. It is rare that you have churches where everybody is able to stand up and exhort, male or female, it doesn't really matter. Generally, it's true that most churches remember that only certain can preach. That's good and well. The problem is, nevertheless, they do allow everyone to preach. It might be the man who says, I'm the preacher, who appoints himself as preacher, or simply people that or a person that someone or people grab and make the preacher. The fact of the matter is that one of the great failures in the church, one of the great failures of the church in the preaching to accomplish what Christ intended by the preaching, namely the opening and shutting of the kingdom, comes down to a failure of the church to recognize the official character of that work. And it's amazing that in these same churches that fail to recognize the official nature of the preaching, there's an acknowledgement that there's all kinds of people in the church that ought not to be there. They don't want to judge them. They don't want to exercise discipline. Perhaps the most egregious, perhaps if they had a mass murderer in their midst who even killed some members, then, then perhaps they might expel them. Showing that there's a connection here between these keys and the effect on a congregation. Go worship at a church. Chances are you will find communion served when you attend. And chances are you will find that communion is open. And it's open for a reason, because that's a church that believes anyone really can be a member. No one really is excluded. Perhaps if there's a requirement, it's a requirement that you have to somehow, some way, show that you're a Christian or just say that you're a Christian, but no one really ever checks. It's not just a matter that adult and child partakes of that table of the Lord, but anyone can. That's a reflection of the gospel taught there. The gospel being everyone's welcome. 
We preach here a kingdom that's not really shut to anyone and is open to all. And yet, then there's the complaint. Why is sin so rampant? Why is it that our church is essentially no different than the world? You really can't tell the difference between us and the world. Even on Sundays when there's a lot going on, you you won't find the church full with all of its membership. Half might be there or less than half. There's no view that we need to go to church and hear the preaching and the importance of the preaching or what happens in the preaching. Many of those problems come down to the fact that the church no longer believes that preaching is a means of grace. Therefore, also, it's a key that opens and shuts the kingdom. And there's another one, too, which is called Christian discipline. The Reformed faith, true biblical faith, understands that the keys of the kingdom are official tools or instruments of God. They are means of God that he gives to the church, and he expects them to exercise. And that when the church is disobedient in that regard, it really loses its right to be a church. It may say it has keys, it may claim to have them in some way, but if you ask where they are, they're nowhere to be found. You won't find discipline, or if it's there, it's rarely, rarely used. It might use the key once in a blue moon, dust it off. But then the other key that should be regularly used, if you examine, there's a lot of things going on in Sunday, but the key of preaching the gospel is not there. They might think it is, but it's not. The Catechism emphasizes this when both, with regard to both keys, it says that it's done according to the command of Christ. That's important. There are things Christ commands, and when Christ commands them, he's saying something. They must be done. Fail to carry them out, and you no longer are one of mine. Remember that. Remember that. Christ commands this to the church, and He commands it to be executed through the office bearers. It's official work. That's brought out with even the word preaching. Examine that word in Scripture, and you're going to find out that you cannot disconnect that word from its official character or nature. Even in the Old Testament, when you had those who spoke God's word, like preachers are supposed to, which occurred, for example, especially in the office of prophet, the Old Testament version of the preacher, the prophet, he had one calling, preach the Word, speak God's Word. But not everyone could just be prophet. Those that made themselves prophets were called false prophets. Only when God anointed and designated and said, you are a prophet, I have called you, were they considered prophets. Same thing's true in the New Testament. And that's brought out by the word used, preach. Look at that word, you're going to find out it's the word herald. And if we're familiar with history, we know what heralds were. They hearkened back to the day when you had kings. There was a king. And when the king had a decree, and when the king had a command, when the king had something to say to his realm, when the king was going to call his forces, his armies together, when the king was going to announce something wonderful that happened, he didn't run around the realm doing that himself. He appointed men, heralds. And he would say, this is what you tell the people. This is what the king says. This is what the king announces. 
and away they went. And if you received that herald shabbily, if you said, ah, I don't believe that word, then you were doing that to the king. Everyone understood when the herald spoke, it was the king speaking. Even though it came through another mouth, everyone understood that the herald could only speak what the king said he could speak. He didn't bring his own word. He didn't show up as his own person. And so in the Old Testament too, the prophets always began, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord has told me. And that's preaching. It's a designated office, a specially appointed office. And the Lord anoints to that office. Now how does that happen? Well, we say he must be called. That's the importance of Romans 10. Romans 10. Romans 10 is related to Galatians 3. Remember, Galatians 3 said, how, how did you receive the Spirit? How did that Spirit come to you? By working and doing? Did you do enough? Did you work hard enough obeying the law that God finally said, I'll give you my Spirit? Of course not. It's impossible. One couldn't do anything according to the law except he has the Spirit. So how'd you get the Spirit? And he only gives them those two options. Doing and working according to the law or the hearing of faith. Did you hear him? Did you receive him through your ears? Well, if you ask, well, how did that happen? What's Paul referring to? Go to Romans 10. And the apostle makes the connection. Where does faith come from? It comes from hearing. What do we hear? The gospel. How do we hear the gospel? A preacher. And where do preachers come from? They are sent. Important text. So how are they sent? Well, they're first called. And there's an inward and an outward call. The inward call consists of a desire of a young man because he has to be qualified and females, females are disqualified. When a young man feels an inner desire driven by the Spirit, of course, to serve God and, of course, serve His church, not serve themselves, not a desire to say, I'm going to fix all kinds of problems in the church, not a desire to say, I want to be heard, I want some followers, but an inner desire to serve God. He loves God and he loves the church. Part of that inward call also is that he has the necessary gifts, especially the spiritual ones, those that are inside, internal. And the Scriptures lays out what those are. And of course, he must give evidence of those. He can't just say he has them. Often it requires the testimony of others. Yes, we believe this man has the gifts. And then lastly, really, there has to be an open way, an open path to that work. The Lord may not be preventing it through providence. For example, God through providence must make a man a man and not the other gender. God must give those gifts and those abilities. God must open up the way. That's the inward call. Then there must be also an external call. It may just be the man. It may just be what the man thinks or others think. It must be also what the church thinks, the official judgment of the church. The church examines. The church judges. The church trains. And then finally, there's a church that says, we call this man. He has an external call. He actually gets a letter calling him to that work. And when those two things are satisfied, 
a man may then be appointed to the office. And that's why, too, when he's anointed to the office, appointed officially in the church, one of the questions that's asked is, do you feel called by God? You must answer, yes, with all my heart, I believe that. And the church, of course, does that in a ceremony after which they have called, before which they have called. Now, there's a lot of implications of that, about that. But the main one that we want to emphasize this morning is simply that when we hear the preacher lawfully called and appointed by God, they hear Christ. He is sent by Christ. He must be received as Christ. It's not appropriate to say, well, we receive Christ, but not as preacher. We see Christ, but not as word. Now, I'm going to move on because I want to spend some time on the content, because it's the content that really tells you whether he's been sent by Christ and speaks for Christ. The question always is, well, is this man really, really sent by the king? And he can say he is, and he can speak the word, but how do you know that? Well, there is a, there is a measure of faith. He's in the office. The king has put him in office. But with regard to us, in our own life too, there is the matter of content. What's the content? Well, the content is the gospel. It's preaching of the gospel. But what I want to bring to your attention this morning is especially the emphasis on the promise of the gospel. Listen. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the holy gospel? So notice, it's the gospel that opens and shuts the kingdom. The gospel. But there's emphasis upon the promise. Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all of their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits, and on it goes. Now this is important for us, teaches us a lot, and we have to spend some time on it this morning because there's all kinds of silly and false notions about the gospel and about what the gospel is and even the relationship of the law and the gospel that they're so to be distinguished that they're really separated. They're as far apart as east and west and someone might even point to Galatians 3 as proof of that. We have to be careful. And we have to make sure we have a reformed understanding of all these matters. And of course, I don't have time to go through it all this morning. But we'll make some headway. Number one, notice there's a difference between the gospel and the promise of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the broader notion. And the broader notion includes narrower notions. For example, you will find the notion of the promise of the gospel, the call of the gospel, you will even see warnings and threatenings of the gospel. And that's even implied by, for example, Galatians 3 that we read, which talks about obeying the gospel. Calls it obeying the truth, but the truth there is the gospel. And these things point out some of the silly notions that are out there. For example, the notion that the gospel simply tells us about what God has done, past tense. And what we need to do is the law. and other. That's not true. Be careful with that. That's not true. The promise includes, or the gospel includes the promise 
In fact, the promise is the heart of the Gospel. But the promise is always about what God will do. The promise isn't about what God has done. The promise is about what God will do. It's a promise of something coming in the future. It's not true that the Gospel is just about the past. It's not true that the Gospel is simply about the cross. In fact, in many places in the creeds, you will discover that the Gospel rests upon, for example, the cross of Christ. In other words, there's a difference between the ground and the promise that's being made there. So, be careful. But this morning, I want to emphasize just the promise. And that because the catechism emphasizes it and emphasizes it as the heart of the content of the preaching of the gospel. Why does it do that? And the answer in brief is because if you're preaching, and even though you're preaching other aspects of the gospel, for example, the gospel is about deliverance from sin. How can you preach that gospel without preaching sin and what it is? And there's the role of the law, by the way, at least in part, to set forth what our sin is. The law also sets forth the promise of the gospel from this perspective. This is the goal. This is the end. This is the perfection that God has promised. That's uh, also a unique Reformed understanding. And so those who want to so distinguish law and gospel that they have nothing to do with each other miss that. Pretty soon they don't even have what we call the third use of the law, that which sets forth the perfection God has said we will be. Or forget that. The law may be received as a promise even. But be that as it may, the promise of the gospel is the heart, so much so that you could almost say, and perhaps should say, if the promise is missing, you've got nothing. And there's proof of that. And it's amazing how often in the creeds, the creeds emphasize that. It's not an isolated thing. And I just want to bring that to your attention. I'm going to be somewhat brief with regard to our creeds themselves. Um the Belgian Confession, and the Canons, because I put that as a meditation. And you may read that on your own. But let me highlight just a few things. The Belgian Confession, Article 18, speaks of the promise, singular. And the Scriptures often do. It also refers to promises. When it's, the plural is used, the idea is this promise is rich. It has many components. There's many parts to it. And yet, it's really all one promise. And Article 18 of the Belgian Confession teaches why. Because there's one promise thing, which is Christ. Christ is the promise. Article 18 says that promise was fulfilled in the Incarnation. Now again, it's not teaching, well, that's the whole fulfillment. The Incarnation implies His life and then His death on the cross and then His resurrection. It all goes together. But it, it calls it one promise because... Just like Galatians 3, there's really one thing promised, and that's Christ. Period. If you go on to Article 33 of the Belgian Confession, there it does what the Catechism does, which ties the sacraments and the promise. This is a wonderful feature of our creeds. When it comes to the promise... Go to the creeds on the sacraments, and you notice those two things tied together. Our gracious God, 
on account of our weakness and infirmities, hath ordained, notice that, ordained, the sacraments for us to seal unto us His promises. If you ask what the sacraments are, they seal, they present, and they guarantee the promises. And the Heidelberg Catechism does the exact same thing. And that's why, if you want to know what the content of the promise is, what's presented in the preaching, it's also there. You will find it articulated very carefully under baptism and then under the Lord's Supper. And then finally, Article 37 of the Belgian Confession, which shows that the promise includes the return of Christ. It talks about the fact that we will fully enjoy the promise when He returns. Article 37 sets forth the whole judgment. And the striking thing there is it shows that there's promises yet to be fulfilled. They're fulfilled in Christ in a, in a sense, but on the other hand, there's more coming, and that has to do with the full enjoyment. We enjoy the fulfillment of the promises now, but in part. They are more fully enjoyed when Christ returns. So these are all things that our creeds teach. If you go to the Canons of Dort, the promise is set forth in 2.5. The promise of the Gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, that's what we call the call of the Gospel, See how the gospel is broader than just the promise of the gospel. The gospel includes the promise of the gospel and then the call to believe, to repent and believe that gospel. See that? That's the canons. Ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction. That means to all men to whom God out of His good pleasure sends, now notice, not just the promise of the gospel, but the gospel. God sends men to proclaim the gospel. He sends them. To some, they're sent to unbelievers, people in the world, not converted, others in the church. But to all and sundry, they are to publish, to preach that promise and the call. To repent and believe it. Not only that, if you go to 348, we read that in that, in that call of the gospel, God calls unfeignedly. And what he promises, he's serious about. He's not lying. Now, here we have to make a very important point. Because later on, we're going to get to the canon's head five which uses the promise of the gospel as the ground for why where there is what we call the preservation of the saints. You all know the Reformed believe the preservation of the saints, which basically is that the elect child of God, the regenerated child of God, cannot fall into hell, cannot fall unto death, cannot fall in such a way that he is not saved. It's impossible. And if you look at the canons, head 5, article 8, if you ask why, and why especially because the child of God does fall into sin. He does sin. Maybe he'll sin, live in sin for a time like David did. 
Or the great sin of Peter. It points them out. And it says, well, if that's the case, why then can't they fall into hell? Why can't their salvation be revoked? Why can't they become now unregenerated? And the answer is given because with respect to God. Let's look at things now from the perspective of God. From His point of view. Not now the sinner's point of view. From the sinner's point of view, he might be excommunicated out of the church. From the sinner's point of view, he might say to himself, all is lost. There is no hope. Which happens in discipline. But now with respect to God, this is utterly impossible. Why? Since His counsel, His will, His decree cannot be changed and His promise fail. God's promise can never fail. What God promises never fails. Now you understand why the promise is emphasized in the preaching of the Gospel. What our creeds teach us is that real preaching, real Gospel preaching promises things. It promises exactly what God promises. It says, here is what God promises. This is what the Lord promises. Now believe that. Repent of your sins and believe that. And it's that, it's that which God uses to convert and to save and to give life and maintain life. Now, exactly because of all of that, it's that the Scriptures and the creeds emphasize that God's promises are not to all men. They're published to all men. It's pronounced to all men. This is what God promises. But it is not preaching of the Gospel. It is not preachers who speak for Jesus who says, God promises this to you all. All of you who can hear me. Notice what the creeds say the promise is. And notice that that promise is very particular. Who is it that God promises eternal life to? Who is it that God promises to forgive their sins? Whosoever believeth. That's who. No one else. If you look through Scripture, you will find that's true. Every time God makes a promise, that promise is particular. It's a promise to Abraham. It's a promise to Jacob. It's a promise to Noah. It's a promise to Adam. It's a promise to David. And when God doesn't use names and speak directly to people, God will always use some term that limits it. The idea of whosoever believeth is not, I promise salvation to everyone. You all are promised salvation, and now you do your part and believe. And if you do your part, then I will save you. No, that's a conditional promise. God issues a particular promise. I save those who believe, and those only. I save those who repent, and those only. I save those who obey my commandments and my law, and those only. Well, you might say that's frightening, especially when it comes to obeying God's law. How could we ever obey God's law perfectly? Well, don't forget you've got the same problem with faith. Who in the world is going to believe in Christ? Who in the world is going to believe these promises of God? Because these promises are not the kind of promises that men can believe by nature. 
it's not going to happen. Which is why it's important to understand also what that promise includes. The promise is not what God has done, nor is the gospel. The promise is also what God will do and what He's doing and what He's done. And if you look at the promise, and that promise is essentially Christ, which we might add is why you often hear also of the spirit of promise. The spirit of promise, that was mentioned in Galatians 3. If you go to Acts 2.39, what's interesting there, for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, there's the promise. We know that promise has to do with baptism, has to do with the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but notice when it was given. When is that preached? And the answer is on Pentecost, right after the Spirit was poured out. Peter is explaining there this Spirit and the presence of the Spirit. Why is He here? What's going on? And Peter says, God's fulfilling His promise. You, you see, it's the promise of Christ and, and His Spirit. It's the reception of Christ by the reception of His Spirit. So if you start looking at the promises of God, that the Gospel preaches what God promises, you will discover an amazing truth which much of the church world ignores today which is God supplies everything. When the promise comes along and says, God will forgive the sins of those who believe in Christ, that promise includes that faith to believe in Christ. When God comes along and says, I promise to do this or that to those who are living, it includes the promise of God to make them alive. You'll see promises where God says, I promise to save my church and the members of the church. It includes the promise of God to make them members of the church. That promise includes everything. Repentance, obedience, faith, partaking of the sacrament. And that's why it's not conditional. That's why it can't be. It's a promise. Now that's preaching. And it's that kind of preaching that opens the kingdom and shuts it. And notice that. The true preacher of the gospel also shuts the kingdom. It comes along and says, you may be here. Are you going to doubt the promises of God? Then you're excluded. Then you're like the children of Israel that dropped like flies in the wilderness who could not enter because of unbelief. When you live a life of disobedience, you're excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And that's now what discipline enters into. Notice that, please, Protestant Reformed people. If we're inclined to think that the gospel, which means good news, really, it's the pronouncement of good news, means that there's only good news in it, you're mistaken. The preaching of the gospel is also this. When it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, that means the preacher, when he goes out into the world, knowing that those to whom he's speaking are unbelievers. He's not speaking in an established church. Then he mustn't just go to them and say, God loves you. God wants to save you all. It's not true. He has to announce to them that as long as they do not sincerely repent, as long as you do not repent, so long as you are unconverted, you stand exposed to the wrath of God. You're exposed to it. And eternal condemnation. 
And God will judge you. In fact, God will judge you according to the very words that you hear and that you reject. Because don't forget, they don't simply reject the gospel. They reject this word that God will judge them in this life and a life to come. That's a part of it. And by the way, that means that's a part of preaching in the church too. This is the same word that must be preached promiscuously. Why is that? Again, because even in the church, where it's a body of believers, God's Word tells us there's often unbelievers mixed in. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the keys. Sometimes people, as it were, sneak in, and they're exposed. The keys of the kingdom say, get out. You don't belong here. Well, that just doesn't happen at discipline. It happens in the preaching. That too belongs to the promise of God. A hard word, but nevertheless true. And let's not forget, Protestant Reform people, that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot preach the negative, what God does to unbelief and wickedness, without preaching what God does to believers and the obedient. And you cannot issue the call to the one without the call to the other. Last, we want to talk about the, the power of this. I'm going to be brief. There's an amazing thing that happens in gospel preaching. And what we must understand is it's not really inherent in the preaching itself. In other words, the power doesn't come from the words itself or the pronouncement itself as such. But it comes from Christ. Christ is pleased to use this means of grace. Christ is used to to use, uh, please to use this or that man. That's why it's not even dependent upon me and my life and, and whatnot. Not as such. God has spoken his word, even the gospel, through wicked prophets like he did with Balaam. Remember that? Spoke one of the most wonderful prophecies about Christ, promises of Christ there ever was. The guy was an unbelieving, wicked man. God's able to do that. And God does that from time to time to remind us Yes, he speaks through preachers. Preachers must be called. They must be ordained. But the power is in me. And the power isn't in the gospel as such. It's not in the words as such. Nevertheless, that's what God uses. Faith even comes by hearing. That's an amazing thing. It's not we have faith and then we hear, which we know to be true. How can you hear the preacher without having faith? Faith is required to hear what's being said in our spirit. And yet the Scriptures say even faith comes by hearing. That's how closely God ties them, just like in the sacrament. Notice the thing. And yet we must always understand that the power is in God. The power is in Christ. He works according to His will. God doesn't save who I want to save. Paul's going to speak of that too, isn't he? Brothers, my heart's desire is that all Israel would be saved. That's what I would like. That's what I want. That's what I've prayed for. But it's becoming apparent to me that's not the will of God. It's according to the will of God. And understand that according to that will of God, it has power. And that's why, for example, many, many places of Scripture even bypass the whole business of the, of the power that comes through the Holy Gospel, the power to save and just links it right back up to God's election. The election has obtained it, the Scriptures will say. The election did it. 
God's choosing is the ultimate source. Well, you see, because God's power, His faith, all the things He promises are distributed according to His will. Otherwise, it's not grace. Otherwise, it's not mercy. Otherwise, it's according to something we did or how we do it. But let's not overlook the fact that there's real power there. Read the Scriptures and notice how time and time again, go to Hebrews 11 and read that once again about all the amazing things the children of God did by faith. And the idea is by faith in the promises. God promised something. And then the children of God went out and did amazing things. Some were sawn asunder. Others lived for decades and decades waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Some even died not having received the promise. In other words, not having seen Christ. They were martyred. They went into battle as little boys against a Goliath with just a slingshot. They, and you ask, well, where did that come from? And the answer is the power of the promise. Faith receives the promise and faith says, I know God. I don't know how he's going to give me a child when I'm a hundred years old. I don't know. But he said he'd do it. I, I don't know how God's going to take me and bring me to heaven, the sinner that I am. But he said he's going to do it. That's the power that's in preaching the promise of the gospel. And that's why, too, there's power in other aspects of the gospel. Why is there even power? Power of God to change me and turn me. And by the way, if you look up the Heidelberg Catechism when it's laying out the promise of the gospel, you'll discover the promise of the gospel isn't just simply that God forgives my sins when I believe in Him, but He sanctifies me. He renews me. Well, that gives a child of God power too, doesn't it? So that even when he hears the law of God, he says, boy, I'm a sinner. How far short I fall, but I know one thing. That's what God promises. That's what God says I'll be. That's what I'll be. That, beloved, is the key, the key of gospel preaching, the preaching of the promises of God. And by them, God opens and shuts the kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word of truth, Thy Word which we believe. Help our unbelief. Forgive, Lord, our sins. Continue to sanctify us by Thy Spirit through faith in the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.